0: This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the Port Aransas Whooping Crane Festival, February 22nd through 25th, 2018, in Port Aransas, Texas. Come see one of North America's most spectacular and most endangered birds in their traditional winter home along the Texas Gulf Coast. Visitors can expect workshops and seminars, birding and nature tours, and trips to see the world's last naturally occurring population of whooping cranes, with experts from Aransas National Wildlife Refuge, Wood Buffalo National Park, and more. Online registration ends February 19th. For more information, go to whoopingcranefestival.org. It's Happy New Year list, and welcome back to another episode of the American Birding Association's American Birding Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Swick, and this is the first episode of 2018, and as is our custom, if a if thing you've done twice can actually be a custom, I guess that's the the bare minimum for a custom. Anyway, as we did last January, the first episode of this year is given nearly wholly over to the new ABA Bird of the Year. And we we went and did it this year. We went for a big splash, a Pacific Typhoon-esque sort of impact. We decided to go ahead and throw down with regard to Hawaii's inclusion into the ABA area and make the ABA Bird of the Year a species that wasn't even on the ABA checklist until about you know, six months ago, beaten to the punch there by such well-known ABA checklist stalwarts as Stygian owl and Spoonbilled, Sandpiper, and Sungreave. That's that's just the S's. It's the EEV, the scarlet honeycreeper, the lava-colored representative for all of Hawaii's unique honeycreeper species, a bird that is as important culturally to Hawaii as it is Ecologically, And one of the more common native land birds on most of the islands, they can still be found on the Big Island and in eastern Maui, though they've been declining quite rapidly on Kauai, and they've unfortunately gotten quite scarce, possibly even locally extinct on Oahu. And it's that sort of troubling trend that a bird that is still such an evocative and once easy to find bird on the islands is declining right in front of our eyes uh, for reasons that we are 100% aware of, that being mosquito-borne bird diseases that was a, a big part of the ABA's decision to push for inclusion of Hawaii and in turn the decision to make EEV the bird of the year this year and I you know I think it's it's something that a lot of birders in the US and Canada within and without the ABA need to be aware of and I and I hope that we can make an effort there because man what what is going on in Hawaii really is heartbreaking if you if you love birds and maybe I say that because I I have had bird of the year 2018 stuff at the front of my mind for the last couple months in preparation for, for all of this. But I also say it to someone who, for a long time, was pretty ambivalent about including Hawaii in the ABA area. So I hear all the arguments that crop up from time to time online about how it's marginally North American, it's not historically part of the ABA area, and thus shouldn't be added later. I, th- I think those are honestly made, even though I'm You know, I am guilty of implying otherwise during the run-up to the vote to change the bylaws. In my defense, this was all going down at the same time. There was a very passionate and consequential presidential election in the U.S., so it was hard not to think of everything on those sort of world-hanging-in-the-balance terms. What turned me from being a Hawaii agnostic into an advocate was hearing about the hawaiian birding community and the incredible passion they have for their native birds and the sense that we in north america u.s birders in particular but canadian birders as well have an obligation to do something anything for hawaiian birds because otherwise they they fall through the cracks there's no oceania or pacific island bird organizations with the sort of clout birders have in the u.s and canada to affect change and and it may feel like a small thing and I'll be honest, I may never really get used to having red jungle fowl and greater necklace laughing thrush on the ABA checklist, but you know that sort of thing seems like a small price to pay if the other side is the extinction of birds like E.E.V. So the stickers, they're going to be in the February issue of birding. We'll have t-shirts and whatnot for everyone to wear. We can all fill in the gaps in our knowledge about Hawaiian birds this year and really try to make up for lost time. On the show today, it's it's mostly Hawaii stuff, but the last segment comes from our friend Alain Clavette in New Brunswick, a new contributor. He checks in with uh, Miramichi resident Peter Gad, who some may know as the host of a very lost thrush in the last part of 2017 and the beginning of 2018. But first, H. Douglas Pratt is a bird artist and author and a researcher of Hawaiian birds. He was the creator of the 2018 bird of the year cover art an Eevee in a mamani tree. It is, is gorgeous. Uh, he is bringing to bear his 50 odd years of experience with Hawaiian birds. He has seen a lot, not all of it. Good. It it has to be said, Uh, a quick note, a couple of times in the interview, I call the bird, the Eevee rather than the correct Eev. I'm still getting used to these Hawaiian bird names. I-, I considered re-recording it, but John convinced me to leave it in. It's a learning opportunity. We're all we're all learning. Anyway, I talk with Doug after this supersized edition of the Rare Bird Focus coming up next. <laughs> This is your rare bird focus for most of December 2017 and a little bit of January 2018. It's a, it's a big one because I skipped the rare bird focus in the last episode, so, so hold on tight. We should start with the ABA Code 5 Loggerhead Kingbird that was seen at the end of December in Miami-Dade County, Florida. This was, surprisingly, the second Loggerhead Kingbird of 2017, but was by far the easiest to see and re This represented the last new bird of 2017 for Evie Morrell and the Stoll brothers, who were big-ear birders that year, who all broke 800 species last year. Evie looks like she set the third highest total in history in 2017, bested only by Olaf Danielson and John Weigel the year before. December boasted another ABA mega at the other end of the continent in Yolo County, California. The ABA's third and California's first record of citrine wagtail was seen just west of Sacramento. The species was long represented on the ABA checklist by a single record from Starkville, Mississippi, one of the great bird record head scratchers of all time. In the last five years, we have seen two additional birds in North America, a long-staying one in British Columbia and this California individual, both more in line with where we'd expect to find an East Asian vagrant. Other first records to report for the period include two from Louisiana, a Lucifer hummingbird that was seen and photographed at a feeder following a winter storm. It never ceases to amaze me how these birds make it to the right feeders with the right people where they'll be recognized. I suppose that also raises the question of how much we're missing when rare birds show up at the wrong feeders where the owners are less inclined to recognize an unusual bird. Anyway, also in Louisiana, a small flock of limkin represents a first record for that state for a total of two new birds in a month for Louisiana. Also in the ABA area, a tufted duck in Minnesota would be a first record there. Obviously, waterfowl always get the provenance question, but there have been a lot of tufted ducks in the northeast this winter, and the big nor'easter last week, the the bomb cyclone, would seem to make a natural origin pretty plausible. In the interior west, New Mexico had a first record black-crested titmouse, and Colorado had a first record red-breasted sapsucker, and up in Newfoundland, the province's first willow flycatcher was discovered. This definitely seems like a long-anticipated bird there, but it's easy to forget that Newfoundland's default Impinanax flycatcher is alder, many birders know that the willow-alder situation is one of the more difficult ID conundrums in North America, especially when they are not vocalizing. But this bird was extremely well-documented, and I am sure that Newfoundland birders are happy to finally fill that gap on their province checklist. This was just a piece of the rarity landscape in North America for December and January. For the whole scoop, check out the ABA blog, blog.aba.org, every Friday. You can also get the latest information on all rare birds around the U.S. and Canada at the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That's at facebook.com slash groups ABA rare. When we decided to make Iiwi the ABA's 2018 Bird of the Year, it was clear that there was only one person we could ask to do the artwork. Doug Pratt is an artist, author, and researcher who has spent a great deal of his life working on and with native Hawaiian birds. He is the author and illustrator of the Field Guide to Birds of Hawaii in the Tropical Pacific, and his illustrations have been featured in the National Geographic Field Guide to Birds of North America and the Handbook of Birds of the World, among other works. He is here with me to talk about this this beautiful piece of work, and the birds of Hawaii. Thank you for joining me, Doug. I, you know you're based in North Carolina, so I run into you from time to time. So it's it's great to speak with you again.
1: Well, it's nice talking to you
0: as well. So let's uh, let's start with this really nice piece of piece of art that you've created for us. Uh, what about your experiences with I'iwi sort of informed this this piece?
1: Well, uh, Eevee is. The- Sort of what everybody considers the iconic Hawaiian honeycreeper. It's just uh, one of those world-class birds that uh, it's hard to describe unless you've seen it and heard it. It's, it's a total package. It has really odd vocalizations that are different from most of the other honeycreepers, and so it's it's got a lot of personality and uh, just just one of those great birds. A friend of mine, uh, Rob Pacheco, who runs a tour service on the Big Island. I think he was the one who called it the essence of honey creeperness, (laughs) (laughs) and I always liked that uh, as a description of the EEV. Uh, And fortunately, at at least in a few spots, it is still seeable. In other words, it's not something you have to have special permission or or special equipment to see. You can just get in your car with your binoculars and drive to some spot where you can see it, at least on the big island and on Maui.
0: And not only is the, the honey creeper sort of this iconic Hawaiian bird, but uh, the tree that is in is sort of uh, native Hawaiian, a very important tree for Hawaii as well, isn't it?
1: Uh, yes, it is. Uh, not specifically for the eevee. It is sort of the, the basic staff of life for another honey creeper called the palila. The tree is the mamani tree, and it has beautiful yellow flowers. And uh, we had originally talked about uh, doing the eevee in the ohia lehua tree, which right. is you know, the, the dominant forest tree in Hawaii and, uh, has beautiful red shaving brush flowers, but having the red bird in the red flowers sort of, to me, took away from the redness of the bird and, uh, and the yellow is just so gorgeous with it that, that I decided I, I basically talked to, talked the guys into, uh, Going with the mamani rather than the uh, ohi'a. Plus, mamani. Well, I started to say it was easier to paint. <laughs> as it turns out, it wasn't so easy to paint after all. But uh, anyway, I'm glad I chose that.
0: Yeah, it's really nice. You've spent you've spent so much time in Hawaii. What is it about Hawaii and the birds there that interests you the most? Not just as an as an artist, but also as a researcher and, and a birder.
1: Well, I don't know why, but I've had a, a lifelong interest in Hawaii, uh, even as a little boy, and uh, at first, it it didn't have anything to do with birds. Later on, I discovered that there were really unusual birds in Hawaii, interesting birds that had sort of been overlooked in the world literature, and in particular, there was this group of birds that exhibit the best bird example I know of something called adaptive radiation, and the birds that are famous for that are the Galapagos
0: finches. yes.
1: Uh, the point of uh, adaptive radiation is just you have a single ancestor that colonizes uh, an archipelago that is a group of islands. And then through the process of speciation from island to island, it eventually just sort of explodes into a cluster of species all from this initial ancestor that go in all sorts of different ecological directions. And then they look very different and to the point that they look nothing like the ancestor. For example, the Eevee. Uh, it's about as far away as you could get visually from uh, a bird that looks roughly like a house finch. That was the, the ancestor. You know, it just was an interesting thing. The Galapagos finches, uh, they've done a good job of adaptive radiation, but none of them have gone anywhere near to the length that uh, some of the honey creepers uh, have gone.
0: No, they're, they're sort of boring. They're yeah, sort of boring, yeah, actually. Yeah, they're all little <laughs> brown and black <laughs> and streaked a little right. and
1: Yeah, and they don't have anything interesting in song. And, of course, the, the cardueline finches from which the honeycreepers are derived are, are wonderful singers. That includes the, the, the canary, after all, you know, the iconic yeah. songbird. Uh, they've taken that uh, ability and uh, uh, done an adaptive radiation of that as well. It's really a, a spectacular group. And uh, I got the chance to go to Hawaii uh, when I first went to graduate school. I had wanted to go for years, and... Second year I was there, this fellow walked into my office area and uh, introduced himself, and it, it was Phil Bruner who eventually became a co-author of mine uh, on the field guide that you mentioned. And uh, Phil was from Hawaii. Of course, I immediately sat him down and started questioning him, you know, asking all about it. And <laughs> anyway, from one thing led like to another, we became very good friends. And Phil had been uh, the last person to see a bird that is now extinct and uh I, that just that just made it even even more more interesting the bird was the Kauai Aikialoa, and it was this big honeycreeper uh with a long bill that about the length of the whole body that curved around and it <laughs> you know sort of as phil described it from seeing it, it it would reach around to the undersides of branches with that long bill and pick at the bark it's <laughs> a pretty amazing thing anyhow uh he got a master's degree, and then went back to Hawaii and said, why don't you come out for the summer? We'll tour Hawaii. And uh, that's all it took after after that trip, I was hooked. (laughs) And and, uh, part of the reason for doing that is that uh, Phil and I had, even at that point way back, decided to do the field guide, which it took 13 more years to do, but that's the way those things go sometimes. But it it did happen. That was the start of it. So that that was my Hawaii connection, and I started going back after that, I discovered a way to get back to Hawaii was to lead tours there. So I would lead a, a bird tour, and then after the tour had left, I'd stay and uh, do some research. I did that. Uh, well, still still do. That comes right up to the present. I, I went out there pretty much every year for a few years, and then I've skipped a few years lately for a variety of reasons, but uh, I went back again last year, so I'm keeping my hand in.
0: So, you've, you've long been an advocate for including Hawaii in the ABA area. Was it satisfying to see that come to fruition in 2016?
1: Uh, very much so. Uh, I had made a huge effort on this, oh, about 20 years ago and, and, and lost. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that point, I just sort of said, well, the hell with it. I just was burned out. You know, I said, if I couldn't get it through then, it's just not going to happen. I, I just you know, somebody else is gonna have to take this and, and run with it. And uh, uh the person who did was fellow on your staff now, uh, Michael Redder. Yeah. I've I've worked with him a lot, but I told him if it, it was his it was his
0: baby to push. I, I just I, I, I was <laughs> done with it.
1: <laughs> and I, but I'm very happy to be vindicated in the long run.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you know it's surprising to see the extent to which Hawaiian birds and uh, you know the, the ecosystem there has sort of flown under the radar uh, with regard to North American birders for a long time.
1: Well, and you know, I'm not, not meaning to interrupt, but I think no, no, the please. fact that the ABA didn't have Hawaii included was part of the problem, and, and some of the birds might have gotten better attention and might have survived or might have not been, been so endangered. If we had had that, uh, it's a real one of the great failings, in a way, of my life that I didn't get that done sooner. But uh, anyway, it it did
0: happen. So it did happen, yeah. yeah. Along that same line, you know, like many ornithologists who have spent a you know a lot of time on the Hawaiian Islands, you've had experience with some birds that that are now extinct. Right. What what has it been like watching this sort of extra, these extraordinary birds sort of wink out while you've been able to watch?
1: Well others have asked me this question and it's a tough one to answer mm-hmm. because they use the, the same thing that the reporters often use on tv and i always yell at them and say what a stupid question which how do you feel about this one well, i i can't right. tell you how bad, i feel, about it. Yeah, I feel yeah. bad about it i'm not happy about <laughs> it it's not bragging when i say i've got five extinct birds in my life it, yeah you know, that's just it's just stating a fact that i wish were not a fact but that is and uh, some of these things, it, it seems just um, just disappeared all of a sudden, uh, too. I mean, they, they just it, it, yeah. well, we didn't yeah. have that many observers, uh, you know, back in the '70s and '80s. And of course, the, the big deal in that period of time was Mike Scott's series of right. island surveys to look for rare birds in Hawaii, to just get a baseline of what was rare and so forth. And that was really uh, historically important. Uh, work that was done. Uh, I I didn't participate in the surveys themselves. I did prepare a training tape for them uh, with the vocalizations of different birds. But I followed it closely. And uh, and when they started, I was convinced some of these remote places that nobody had been for almost a hundred years, they were going to turn up something. They were going to find something that was thought to be extinct. But it didn't happen pretty much uh, what we knew was there was what was there, and maybe not even as much as of what we thought was there was there. And uh, You know, that's a shame. The, the bird, I thought, might turn up uh, more than any other was this uh, bright scarlet red bird on Molokai called the Kakawahie It was must have been a really spectacular bird, but Molokai is uh, too low in elevation. They didn't have the upland areas where things could escape to to get away from bird diseases, so... Um, so that bird was lost, but it had been seen in 1964. So, you know, I missed it by less than 10 years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and, of course, as I mentioned, Phil Bruner had seen the last Akioloa on Kawaii uh, in uh, 1969. So I missed that one by even fewer years. But, um, yeah. you know, that's that's just the way it goes. It, it, you know, seeing those uh, individual birds sort of wink out for one reason or another, was one thing, but there's even more, uh, uh, even even sadder for me, is what's happening today on the island of Kauai. Yeah,
0: Kauai is in, in a lot of trouble, yeah.
1: Exactly. It had it was a birdie place. I mean, I think most birders understand what I mean by that. It was just a birdie place. Lots of native birds. It had, except for the Akealoa, it was believed to still have all of the historically known species. Uh, when I first started working in Hawaii, basically it it had an, uh, a nearly intact native avifauna. that was just something unique. Uh, in Hawaii, all the other islands lost quite a few species. It, it was just my favorite place to go. It, it's not just that it has lots of birds, but it is just one of the world's most beautiful islands. It's just absolutely gorgeous. You know, the combination of birds and spectacular scenery is just really hard to beat. <laughs>
0: And, and it's hard to beat. Yeah, that's that's the selling point for Hawaii, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Well, about, let's see, I guess now 12, 12 years ago, Alvaro uh, Jaramillo and I both uh, reported that in, in that year, we had both led bird tours uh, that included Kauai, and we both said, wow, where are the birds? The birds are just gone. And they did just seem to be gone. We had been there, it was 2007, I should say. We had been there in 2005, both of us, and everything looked normal. And then in 2007, the birds were gone. I mean, it was just that quick. And so we sort of shot the fireworks up into the sky to tell me, hey, something's going on here. And it turned out that something really important was going on there. And that was that as uh, the climate has changed and uh, things have gotten warmer, the mosquitoes have moved higher up the mountains, And they were finally up into this area called the Alakai Swamp, which is a big plateau You know, all of it is is pretty flat and it's just right at 4,000 feet of elevation, which was just high enough to be out of the mosquito's reach before that. But didn't take much change and there they are. And so, and the the birds have have just crashed. And it's to the point, I just, I can hardly go to Kauai anymore. I just, it it just makes me cry, quite literally. It's just, it's like going to the cemetery to visit an old friend that, you know, Hmm. you knew way back when. It just, I don't know. So if you want to know how I feel, uh, it's uh, pretty sad about the whole thing. Yeah. And the thing is, if we had anticipated that, we could have saved those birds. Right. Not that we really would have won battle long term. That's questionable. But at least now they actually have some techniques for dealing with the mosquitoes. It's implementing them. That's the problem.
0: Yeah. I talked to Mike Parr last year, uh, about Hawaiian bird conservation and he mentioned, you know, they're doing a lot of kind of interesting genetic work, right. uh, with mosquitoes, sometimes making them sterile. Yeah. Um, it's, it's probably one of the great ironies of Hawaiian birds, the birds of Hawaii that, you know, the, the populations are falling off right as the technology that possibly, you know, if it was 15, 20 mm-hmm. years earlier, yeah, might've really made a great impact. Right. The
1: timing was just, just wrong. And, uh, just you know, slightly I, I off, said yeah. about 20 years ago, uh, I think it's still true, and it may eventually be true if, if we get this uh, implemented, but uh, I'm not very optimistic about it. But the, the comment was that if we control mosquitoes, I mean, sure, there are problems with habitat loss, there are problems with introduced predators, there are problems with this, there are problems with that. But if you could get rid of avian malaria and avian pox, which are spread by mosquitoes, we'd have Appa singing in the coconut palms in Waikiki.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, it's just you go to other Pacific islands that don't have the b- disease problem, and the native birds are common right in town, you know, right as soon as you get off the boat or the plane, and they're right there. And That's not true in Hawaii.
0: Yeah. Well, that brings me to your next question. Maybe, maybe you already answered it. Now, are you at all optimistic about some aspects of Hawaiian bird conservation? Uh, the seabirds, in particular, they seem to be doing a fair job addressing some of the introduced predator problems with fencing. Um, are attitudes on Hawaii changing at all? Are they, are they changing fast enough to, to save some of these birds?
1: Oh, I think so. And uh, I think some of the seabirds have, have really gotten people's attention. Everybody knows about the projects to save uh, San Albatross, for example, uh, out at K- a Point on Oahu. And, uh, you know, there was a big... Deal in the in the news recently when some vandals went out and killed a bunch of birds, but you know it just it just elevates the public awareness of those problems. Plus, you have the the public is heavily involved when when some of these seabird fledge in the fall uh, due to artificial lighting. Some of the fledglings will instead of going out to sea like they're supposed to, they turn and mm-hmm. come back in to these lights, which is they're they're programmed to go toward the lightest. towards the light
0: right the reflection of these the moon yeah yeah and (laughs) if it's the moon fine
1: but if it's you know the light of a hotel then that that is a problem and they come down they land in parking lots and out in the road and uh, people pick them up so the public does get involved and uh, you know they they've got a program called save our shearwaters that is involved that and and some other uh, rehab groups so yeah this the seabirds are actually doing well and from a birder's perspective, I think that's going to be the big draw of Hawaii. Uh, is there, we're now learning. Uh, it's one of those places that people didn't think there was much in the way of seabirds to see if you went out because nobody went out to look. <laughs> they were saying, well, we don't see anything, but that's because you're not looking. <laughs> uh, and now that people are starting to take pelagic trips uh, out of uh, Kauai and, and Oahu and the big Island. We're finding that uh, the seabird uh, situation in Hawaii is really interesting, and there are some really things that we thought were rare that are relatively easy to see in Hawaii. Like, for example, the Juan Fernandez petrel uh, shows up in good right. numbers every every fall uh, now, and it was mm-hmm. you know something that there were two or three records of at one point. So, uh, so the yeah. seabirds are yeah that's that's going to be a uh, a real draw. It's not even as much, as seasonal as we thought. Uh, you can see something interesting almost any time you go out, So that, That's a hopeful sign, and uh, they're setting up a number of preserves, uh, even on islands like Oahu uh, or Wedgetail Shearwaters and uh, uh, San Albatross and other things. So there is some hope there. But yeah. to me, the, the more important thing, I probably shouldn't say more important, just the things that are more interesting to me are the land birds. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's, yeah. there is some little grain of hope here and there. But, you know, when you've been going to Hawaii as long as I have, and you've seen all of these changes and and this is and that, it, it's like mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, the character on Saturday Night Live used to say, Roseanne, Roseanne, she says, it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> and that just seems to be the case in Hawaii. If you have one you, one problem is like playing whack-a-mole. You have yeah. this problem here, you deal with that, and something else pops up somewhere else. So now, even if we could get control of, of the mosquito problem or the malaria problem, whatever you want to call it. Now we've got a new plague that, that started just on the Big Island, and we don't really even know much about it, but it's called Rapid Ohia Death.
0: Yes. Yeah, and it guess.
1: is uh, something comparable to the chestnut blight in eastern North America, except the chestnuts were one tree in four, and the Ohia trees are eight trees and ten uh, of the forest there. And I mean, it, it, it is very rapid. It's huge tracts of Ohia forest in lowland areas, have already died. I I don't know. uh, I I don't feel good about it. You know, it's like, you know, if it's not one thing, it's another. Yeah.
0: uh. Thanks so much, Doug. And and congratulations on a really beautiful piece of work for this cover. It's, it's really gorgeous. You can find more on the ABA bird of the year, including Doug's cover art at aba.org slash B O Y bird of the year. Thanks again, Doug. It It was great to talk to you.
1: Well, it was great to talk to you, and I didn't need to bring you down so much, but because uh, Hawaii is still worth visiting. It, That's great to uh, hear. Even and for the birder, uh, with the situation what it is, hey, you better go now because in five years you never uh, know there are some things you might not see. Yeah. So, yeah. Exactly.
0: Well, thanks so much again. Well, thank you. If you want to hear more from Doug Pratt about his work, an interview with him will be published in the February 2018 issue of Birding Magazine, available to members. That issue will also have the famous ABA Bird of the Year stickers, so you won't want to miss that. If you are not a member, there's no better time to make sure that you see it all. You can get more information at aba.org. Alain Clavette is a birder from New Brunswick, and he checks in with Peter Gadd, proud host of the ABA's first missile thrush. My
2: name is Peter Gadd. We're in Miramichi City.
3: Peter, uh, we knew each other because of our common passion. Uh, Little did I know that one day I was going to be in your yard looking at a first (laughs) record for North America. How does it feel?
2: Well, it's certainly very interesting, and it's certainly, uh, for me, going to be a lifetime birding event. And it's satisfying too because such interest is showed and I'm awfully glad that you know it, it was worked out what it was and um, that I was able to see it and let those who n- had a better experience than me uh, find out more about it.
3: So bring me back on the day it was found. How did you find that bird? Tell me in details how it happened.
2: Well, it was Saturday and uh, my wife and I do are involved in Project Feeder Watch, which means two days a week through the winter we record all the birds that visit our feeders. So Saturday was one of those days, and so I was watching quite keenly, and saw this bird in the mountain ash, and the striking feature was the the very extensive spotting on its chest and on its belly. Um, I immediately went to Sibley's, a North American bird guide, and couldn't find it, and naively, made my best guess that it's got to be a juvenile American robin. There's an awful lot of things wrong with that decision, but I wasn't thinking outside the book at all. So I was thinking North American bird.
3: Maybe that's the lesson that we all get as a as a birder. I would have probably done the same thing. A lot of people would have done the same thing, especially if you were not getting super good sightings at the at the at the time.
2: There were there was a lot wrong with that 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 identification though, and I, I did have good photos to work from. So I, I have fewer and fewer excuses. But <laughs> the feet were the feet, The foot color was wrong. Um, the plumage at this time of year was wrong the size was wrong <laughs> but
3: that's it peter it teaches all of us <laughs> to does. think outside of the box sometimes yeah. not yeah. to jump the gun that but to right. think outside well, of the well, box i was
2: at that too i was cautious i didn't want to embarrass myself by saying something oh nobody in north america has ever recorded this bird before which
3: is probably the best quality that a birder yeah. can have peter so uh, no no remorse there <laughs> yeah so so how did it go from there well, so you um, had pictures at that point.
2: Yes, and I, I suspected there might be something wrong with, with my, my guests. So uh, I sent the photos to Nelson Poirier in, in Moncton and um, a couple of other people, and Nelson got back to me right away and said that you might have something special here, Peter, but I won't go any further until I hear from other people. So Nelson had sent it around and came back with the identifications a little later that it might be either a song thrush or the missile thrush, which are both European birds and extremely rare. Uh, the song thrush being reported only once, apparently, in North America, and the missile thrush never. So uh, there's still some uncertainty because n- none of us are familiar with the bird. And there was still some uncertainty and quite a bit of debate, apparently, about which one it was. And on Sunday morning, I was able to get a photograph of its uh, wing pit, I call it. And uh, it was white, which was a definite confirmation that it was a missile thrush. Which uh, at that point started exciting a lot of birders. You, you've had
3: a lot of visitors since, uh, since then.
2: We had about three dozen yesterday from, in spite of the snow and the fresh snow and the, and the, and the bad roads, uh, we had about three dozen from New Brunswick and, and a few from Nova Scotia. And this morning, um, at 20 to 8, there were four visitors from Maine and um, now there's been another person from Quebec so the longer it goes on the further afield apparently visitors will come from
3: are you ready for that if uh, people birders seems to behave so far eh? it seems to be a good setup anyways to to view the bird respectfully
2: yeah we've been warned that it, we we may regret letting people know that this bird was here but I, I doubt that um, yeah uh, we don't know what to expect really um, but it is a good view and, and visitors have been very very polite and very thoughtful and, and uh, very appreciative so it's the it, welcomes are not going to be worn out i'm quite sure about that
3: it's a good opportunity to make uh, birding in north america shine
2: yes i suppose that's so <laughs> yeah
3: thank yeah. you so much peter you're very welcome he's out in the open for me now of course i have to shut this microphone and uh, i can't find the right button yeah, here we go so he's right there in the open eh? you guys see it
2: Two vertical branches, so two stems.
3: Oh, yeah, 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 okay. yeah, 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 yeah. I see it, I see it. Thank you, Hank.
1: Okay, come
0: on, baby. As of the 1st of January, the missile thrush is still being seen around the Gads' home in Miramichi, New Brunswick. You can hear Alain talking about the birds of New Brunswick regularly on CBC Radio Canada's Shift New Brunswick program. He's on Twitter at Acadian underscore Birder. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization. We rely on support from members to keep doing what we are doing. If you are a birder or a bird enthusiast, I, th- I think you'd like being a member. You get 10 great publications a year, discounts to our partners like Beauty Books, and the knowledge that you are helping to build a better birding community in the U.S. and Canada. Get more information at aba.org join. Special thanks to Roy Cohn of Centennial, Colorado, Michael Eaton of Louisville, Kentucky, Linda Tucker Burfitt and Clinton Burfitt of Salem, Oregon, Wesley Kerr Fox of Fortson, Georgia, Ann Hoover of Fort Worth, Texas, Brian Tinker of Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, Douglas Cooper of Vancouver, British Columbia, and Lewis Holmes of Middlebury, Vermont. All of you recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as the reason. Thanks so much for your support. Executive producer of the American Birding Podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He's a great boss. Always says yay yeah, yay, yeah. never nay nay. Technical production by John Lowry. Whenever I need some extra sound work done, he's always, okay, pal, I'll have it tomorrow. Uh-oh, make it two days. Extra help from Greg Neese and David Hartley. The best pal you ever see. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Twitter at ABA, except no substitutes. Are there other ABAs out there? Hello, Questions and comments can come to me at podcast at I'm Nate Swick. Mahalo. Till next time.